0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off.
1: LinkedIn presents.
0: I'm Maura Ahrensmele, and this is The Anxious Achiever. The show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work and how we can all do both better. Grief doesn't respect office hours. This is Rebecca Sofer, founder of Modern Loss. I interviewed her in 2022, and I'm going to offer you an updated conversation with her today in case it's helpful as we're trying to process what's happening in Israel and Gaza. Sofer is a beacon for millions who are trying to process grief and show up in their lives at the same time. And like me, she is a Jewish American. We're sad and shocked and worried about what's happening, angry, confused, relationships are getting frayed, and social media feels very, very, very tricky. So today we're going to talk about how we get through the day, what we do with our guilt, and how we take care of ourselves and try to be helpful, as many of us live our lives as they were before last week. You'll first hear a short interview with Rebecca that I recorded on October 13th, and then our extended conversation from last year. Here's Rebecca Sofer. how are you? What's going on? What's going on? <laughs> What's going on? I think at this point,
1: what isn't going on, should we ask? You know, it's funny. I just, I mean, it's it's not really funny at all, but I've been thinking about this German word all week, and I'm probably going to destroy the pronunciation, weltschmerz. 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 You know, the Germans really have figured it out linguistically with regard to like, melancholic feelings and feelings of like envy. I mean, they, just, they it just, they're so smart with the language. And so it's a German word that literally translates to world pain. Mm. And it's been in my head all week because I love finding words from other languages that don't exist in English that just describe the feeling perfectly. And so I was on Merriam-Webster. The description is the mental depression Or apathy caused by comparison of the actual state of the world with an ideal state?
0: I think that's the term of now, honestly. Yeah. I had a moment, I was listening to the daily podcast this morning, which is extremely brave woman. (laughs) It's extremely painful. It's a first person. And I went to my dermatologist and I felt like such an asshole. I'm like, it's a beautiful day. It's Friday morning. I'm at my dermatologist. It's peaceful here. And I'm listening to this story. And I'm just, you know, you're feeling, I think the other thing German words pick up so much is the sort of bizarre juxtaposition of life so often.
1: One million percent. I mean, I wish if I were fluent in German, I would be able to express myself so perfectly. I know. The Germans get the soul, like the state, the, the nuance, all the shades of gray that the soul can feel. And also just like the duality of life that, it, you know, what you just described with your dermatologist is what so many of us, that's our reality is like most of us, I would assume that the majority of your listeners are in the United States, maybe Canada. UK and they aren't, you know, living on a kibbutz, living under, you know, in a colonized state in in Gaza, they're terrorized by the news. They may be worried about somebody they know directly or indirectly or feeling like, you know, people that they're just emotionally connected to are suffering, maybe fearing for their safety because of certain threats that have been made you know, at a global scale, but they still got to go to the PTA meeting. They still got to get that mold checked, you know, but that's life, right? It's like, it literally is. This is like the extreme version of like holding, you have to hold space for all of it because the reality is, is that, you know, most of us don't have the luxury
0: of hiding under the covers. I really value your insight. And I'm actually going to pose three questions that a colleague sent that I just felt were really, really sort of dead on to how a lot of us feel. And I would love your personal view. So one of them is, besides simply muting social media and turning off the news, are there specific techniques or mental exercises that can help us stay on track at work? How do we refocus when we're constantly getting sidetracked? Especially so many of us whose job is to be on the internet. It's really hard to turn off those news flashes or to have that moment.
1: Yeah, it, it it really is. I would say it's like impossible. And maybe that's the key. Look, first, I am not a trauma therapist. I can speak from my experience, from what I've learned from our global community at Modern Loss and the many amazing therapists that I speak to regularly about all of this stuff. I think that staying on task or even just being remotely productive this week, you deserve not even a gold medal, you deserve a platinum medal if you manage to finish that report or like submit that application. I mean, it's just, it's asking a lot of us. You know, many years ago, I ran a piece by a yoga teacher on modern loss. And the essay was about how everybody assumes that even a yoga teacher should figure out how to be Zen at all times. <laughs> but after her parent died, she struggled with monkey mind and she was like, what's wrong with me? I'm the one who's supposed to be able to handle this stuff right, mentally. Right. But I think that, you know, we have this tendency to, when we're feeling a lot of things, you know, fear, sadness, anxiety, we're like, okay, let's just, push through it, you know, like I'm just going to push through it because I I don't have a lot of control over the situation. I'm just going to ignore the feelings. And in my personal experience and that of many others, that doesn't really help a lot. I think that the most important thing is actually figuring out how to hold space for what you're feeling. And maybe it can't be at 2pm when your TPS report is due. But I have learned many years ago, this technique called the container exercise. I'm just going to give like a little tip that that I've learned that so many people have been helped by it is useful for people who have difficulty handling distress in certain moments I think a lot of EMDR therapists use it in between sessions to help slow down you know processing so it's the container theory so imagine when you are feeling like you're just overflowing and you don't know how you're going to get through the next hour of tasks that you have to do because everything on your mind. Imagine some sort of secure container that's in this room or in some space that like is very, very safe, right? And it's strong, like come up with whatever the heck you can think mm. of. And because I'm just, you know, a Gen Xer, I always think of the Al Gore's lockbox. <laughs> I think oh of my, a lockbox. Whoa, box. that where did <laughs> I, that one come from? I know, I know. Sorry, last word in <laughs> the past. You know, but I just think of like, you know, when he said, I put all of my feelings in a lockbox. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so what is it made of? I literally picture what is it made of? What color is it? What is it that makes it safe and secure? And then I take every distressing image, thought, Worry, fear, what if and you imagine putting them inside, sending them into that container, shutting the door and locking it and then do like a last check. Okay, did I leave anything out? Is there anything else that needs to be in there? Put it in there it can, this can take like one or two minutes tops, right? How do you make it more secure? Do you need to barricade the door? Do you need to like saran wrap it like they do with luggage at the airport? (laughs) And I know this, maybe it sounds silly, you know, cause I I know, you know, like it. it's like there are lots of people laugh sometimes when I talk about this, but the thing is, is that you can actually up that. Is the container safe in this room? Do I need to put it in an even safer room? And then you put it away, right? And you say, I'm going to send it in here whenever anything comes up. And I will come back to it when I have the time to sit with this stuff. When I feel like I'm feeling a little bit less deregulated, you know, it's like we're all like going about completely ungrounded right now. We're not feeling grounded in any given moment. We're dysregulated when we're feeling more regulated, maybe after we've had a session with our therapist during our session, maybe after we've managed to go for a walk, after we've remembered to breathe for a few minutes, which, by the way, another seemingly silly suggestion is remember to breathe. It slows you down.
0: It regulates you. And also to breathe when you're consuming online content. Absolutely. So there's been all this research that we, and I do this, we don't breathe well when we're emailing. We don't breathe well when we're online. And when you're reading terrible things online, remember to breathe deeply.
1: Yeah, and that's like a real mindfulness technique, which is like almost notice how your body yeah. is reacting. You yeah. you you say that a lot of us need to be online, and I don't think that any of us are able to completely shut down social media, which is kind of a shame this week because there's a lot of really disturbing images flying around. There's disturbing words that are turning into images in our head. And, you know, it's very traumatic for us mentally. And so notice, like, are you tensing up? It's like, are your shoulders tensing? Is your heart racing? You, I encourage everybody to like, stop yourself and just remember, take some breaths. You will quite literally notice your body not like relaxing, it's all okay, but like you have to regulate yourself a little bit. And when it comes to social media, the truth is, is that I think that this is the time to become a bit of a strict mistress or, you know, taskmaster with yourself. It's really easy to go down the rabbit hole on different platforms. There's a ton of really terrifying Material flying around online. And I think that it's really important to figure out how you're managing your relationship with the internet. I do it by reminding myself that the news isn't going anywhere. (laughs) That if I, you know, say I'm going to check my phone at three o'clock for 10 minutes, that's going to be the afternoon check. I'm not going to permanently miss anything by not being scrolling or getting updates or pings beforehand or afterwards. It's all still going to be there and it's going to live online forevermore. So you're not missing anything. Also, another thing that is really helpful is to just really sit and think about what sources Do you feel comfortable receiving information from, you know, you just mentioned the New York Times, the the, you know, the Daily Podcast. For others, it might be some other publications. Really think about not just news sources like publications, but social media platforms. What are the ones that you feel provide a little bit of a salve. Like, are you connecting with people on Instagram? You know, are some of your friends DMing you saying, how are you doing? Like, are you getting some sort of comfort from that? Or are you scrolling and feeling like you're going to lose your mind? Are you feeling your body tensing up? Are you feeling really stressed? You know, think about, you know, as the New York Times calls it, X comma, formerly known as Twitter. Is that a platform that is good for you to be on right now? It's much less regulated and controlled than it was. Each person knows what they themselves can handle. And I think that you really need to be honest with yourself about what is not good for you and then take action, yes. you know, because there's no filter. You're the filter.
0: Well, and sometimes it feels like you're doing work by outraging yourself and social media is really good by that. You know, it it can feel like you are paying attention in a way that you should be to engage with the discourse and the images, but that's not always good and it's not always helping. You know, one of the things I want to ask you about before we play your interview from last year, which I think will be so helpful, is about getting the response from other people that you need. And you talk about how, you know, grief doesn't respect office hours. Grief has no timeline. (laughs) Grief doesn't care that you have to go to the company offsite and do trust falls. And I think what a lot of I'm seeing this week is especially Jewish Americans, but other people feeling real disappointment and expectations from other people at work about acknowledgement, about response. What's your advice about that? I see this a lot from people like, I want people at work to know how I'm feeling, but they're not acknowledging it in the way that I want them to. Yeah.
1: Look, the truth is, is that I think a lot of people right now are feeling the extreme need to be seen in the painful thing that they are going through. Mm -hmm. I'm not just talking about Jews around the world. I'm talking about Palestinians, you know, people of Palestinian heritage, you know, there was a huge earthquake in in Afghanistan this week. I mean, the pain is real. It's everywhere. There's a lot of pain. And I think that people sometimes think like, well, you know, everybody's focusing on this current event and nobody's really focusing on my current event. And that feels kind of lonely or that everybody is aware of my current event. but There's like this radio silence am I going crazy? You know, these are all natural reactions. What I've learned is, you know, the sad reality and and the hopeful reality is there's enough room in the universe to hold space for all the pain. You know, there's enough room for all of us to try and acknowledge what everybody around us is going through in, in an empathetic way. Unfortunately, I don't have the control over your colleagues to, you know, ask them to show up for you in the ways in which you need. And I also know that the workplace is a sticky place. You know, it's a place where, look, we've looked online and we're seeing corporations wringing hands over whether they should make statements over current events. So I think that the workplace with regard to what is going on in Israel and Gaza right now, it's a sticky wicket. However, if you have close colleagues, if you have people who are even your close acquaintances, and they haven't said anything to you. But also, if you haven't said anything to them, I think you need to remember that it's really hard for people to intuit exactly what you're feeling and going through unless you try to share. Yeah, I think that it is absolutely, you know, warranted and, and acceptable for you to share that You know, you're having a really hard week. You're having trouble concentrating. You're really distressed by what's going on. You're distressed by, you know, let's say you're a Jewish American, you know, I don't know, the call for global jihad on Friday, the 13th, at the same time when you have to make a presentation, (laughs) you know, it's almost comical when you think about all the stuff that you have to handle mentally, or maybe you're, you know, you have family in Gaza and you're sitting, you know, in a meeting with your manager or at a conference. And you're flipping through the news cycles and you're seeing how a million people were asked to evacuate. I mean, that's a lot to deal with. And so I absolutely think that it is worth sharing with people with whom you feel comfortable, a sense of trust and comfort at your job, in your workplace, you know, what it feels like right now, like what you feel like and ask them, say, you know, I just wanted you to know what I'm going through and what it feels like for what it's worth. It's very hard to ask a colleague exactly to support you and like say, you know, I don't view this as a political situation. I view view this as grief, you know, as a human situation, the pain that we're all feeling. I'm not talking about Israeli policy or Palestinian policy. I'm talking about the massive scale of human suffering that we've all witnessed and how that's really hard and how it affects each of us in a very different and personal way. And I think that it's saying for what it's worth, I wanted you to know what I'm feeling, because that opens the door to an answer. And you can also say, I'm also not expecting you to like, take this pain away, because that's not anybody's job. But I just wanted you to know, because it's felt kind of weird to like, not talk about it this week.
0: Learn more at TIAA.org backslash Promises Pay Off. So you mentioned, I mean, the scale of global suffering. You and I are both mothers. Mm. And I think a lot of Jewish Americans, I can't speak for Palestinian Americans, feel a sense of guilt. I know I do. I could be a mother in Israel right now. What can I do? What action? What action are you taking? What do you recommend? well with regard to guilt look
1: I think both you and I were, we're both Jewish mothers as you said so we have an endless <laughs> well of guilt from which we draw so the guilt is always there um and in this sense yes I understand what you're saying you know why is your life seemingly okay why is maybe your biggest personal problem today you know <laughs> whether your dermatologist is going to be 12 minutes late coming into the office when another mother in Israel is wondering if her children child is okay, That's who was right. taken hostage. And it is actually insanity inducing to start making those comparisons. You know, I did the same thing with myself when I saw pictures of Syrian toddlers being washed ashore, oh Syrian refugees. And I remember thinking, why am I so upset about this thing today? My child is not being washed onto shore from trying to, you know, escape A a fearful situation. But the reality is, is that that's not your situation. Everyone has their own set of realities that comes with their own set of problems and challenges. And it is not your job to feel guilty that you're not directly suffering from what is going on in Israel and in Gaza. However, if you have that guilt, if you have those feelings, and if you do feel pain, there are a lot of things that can help with that. I mean, survivor guilt, it's a real thing. Mm -hmm. You know, in a way, it's like a type of survivor guilt. You're like, why wasn't I affected? Why were they affected? And I think that taking action is a really helpful thing to do when you're feeling impotent, when you're watching from afar and the most active thing you feel like you're doing is scrolling on Twitter, right? right? You're like, right. that's not actually not accomplishing anything for anyone. It's just freaking you out exponentially more. So when you think about what might feel good with your spilkus, right? Is it attending a vigil? Is it donating money to different organizations. There are a lot of organizations out there, you know, humanitarian ones. There are lists everywhere that you could donate to. Find community. What about your local community? Is there a synagogue that's doing a drive? Is there a peace organization that needs volunteers? You know, I just read that in New York, there was a plane taking off with tons of breast milk (gasps) donated by lactating mothers around the five boroughs, it's heading to Israel because there's so many babies that need food. And that sounds insane, right? But there's a need for that. There is a need for a lot right now. And chances are that one of those needs is something that aligns with something that you can provide. And that feeling of being active, of not just sitting there in your spiral and your guilt is incredibly helpful. And not only that, it actually helps people. So please take some action. You know, I just signed up for a WhatsApp group from a social justice organization that I'm a part of that's based in Israel to entertain and read to kids in Israel whose parents need to just make a phone call, scream at a wall, take a shower, do some work. I literally signed up to just go on to WhatsApp video and entertain them. And the joke will be on them that my Hebrew is God awful. So <laughs> I'll just be doing, I don't know what I'll be doing. I'll just be like singing. I don't even know. But it's like, how great is that feeling of like, okay, I can do one small thing. I can do this. You know, like I tell you the opportunities are everywhere. So action is really, really helpful. But also you got to take care of yourself the term self-care, I know that it can be like, just like a buzzword that doesn't mean anything, you know, like I even wrote about this in my book, you know, it's like hydrate, like, okay, great, like hydrate, practice self-care. But like, just you have to think about like, what is taking care of myself? And also, what is taking care of myself in ways that are continual and not waiting until I feel like
0: I'm exploding? Exactly. And I think the container is self-care. I mean, I think that taking care of media consumption for something like this and, and all the feelings, you know, you can't process that while trying to present on Zoom.
1: No, You can't. I mean, you can and I have, but it's mm. ugly and it's difficult, right? <laughs> and also I think that because it's also important to be mindful that this is not like oh, the thing happened and it's over. Right. No, 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 no. This is a news cycle that is very much a live wire. This is evolving every single second. This looks like it's going to be a marathon of epic proportions. And so you have to pace yourself. And so that's why I say it's important to acknowledge that you have feelings. And what do those feelings mean? I need to contextualize these. I need to seek clarity in these feelings. No, no, no. It's just important to recognize that you're having a lot of visceral feelings come up. And acknowledge them. You don't have the energy to like contextualize them right now because everything is happening very quickly. You owe it to yourself. And when I say self care, you know, it looks like different things for different people. Are you somebody, you know, who needs to run? Do you need to do like Zumba? Mm -hmm. Do you need to go on a walk? Like this nature healing, it actually does work. You know, Uh, studies show that even looking at a freaking houseplant lowers your blood pressure. If you do it for a couple of minutes, get outside, get into nature. Do you need healing touch? Are you missing like a hug from somebody? Do you really need something like that? Hmm. Can you ask a friend to just, I really need a hug today. And if you can't, can you, I don't know, go get like, it sounds so silly, but like, it's not, can you go get your hair blown out? Can you get a pedicure, get like the extra foot massage, get a manicure, have somebody pay somebody to touch you in an appropriate, in an appropriate way, way, you know, <laughs> in an, you know, um, can you text with people? Or is it also just like figuring out what are my go-tos that I've gone to in other times? Like think back to other times when you've had to just be in survival mode. And I do that all the time. I've done that this week. I've, I've envisioned like, what did I do the week after my mom died to just like keep my Head above water, you know, and go micro. And so I have thought, I remembered like, oh, it's those moments of like just little like laughter that reminds me that I'm still in here. And I, I find myself watching. Every single day, I've watched this SNL skit with Will Forte and Peyton Manning. It's like the locker room dance on SNL. I highly recommend everybody Google it. It's on YouTube. You can watch it. I guarantee you, you will be laughing. And no, it doesn't mean that you're not taking what's going in the world seriously. It means you need to regulate yourself and you need to breathe. And so, you know, I find myself sharing a lot of silly funny things with friends this week because everybody needs a break like nobody can be in this heaviness every single second if they don't need to be it's not helping you it's not helping you to help anybody else either This has been an enormous time of grief in general. And while there are certainly parts of my book that really do relate to death loss, I would say that the visceral goal of the book is to help people remember their people in one of the first parts of the book through ritual and memory and really hard questions and really meaningful questions. And so yes, some of that is like prompts that will help you to remember and think through and even come up with challenging things that you might want to think through more with say a therapist or a friend. But you know, a lot of the book really relates to how do I manage really hard and uncertain times where I don't even understand what like tomorrow looks like, let alone next Year? How do I live in a space that's really uncomfortable when it's become clear that the discomfort is going to continue, that everything is going to feel tenuous for the foreseeable future? And how do I do that while still like showing up for others and showing up for myself and learning how to draw boundaries and learning how to care for my body and my mind and, you know, grow friendships, manage intimate relationships? And the hope is for me that the people who are reading it who are grieving a death loss, be it recent or years ago, because it's still germane, that the tools that they develop would be things that they can transfer over to other challenging experiences in their lives and apply them.
0: And and, and one of the things that... I think it's relevant for a lot of people during these times is you really take issue with the sort of military and war metaphors that we as yeah. a society like to append to people who are going through loss, you know, focus on your strength, you're a survivor, you're a warrior, you know. Yeah. And you say if you keep furiously powering through situations, you're going to power yourself right off a cliff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's really applicable to a lot of people right now.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, we we really, really love using the war metaphors, you know, and, and I still to this day, people who you know, I really respect and and like no matter what, keep saying, oh, they lost their battle or they've been fighting so hard. And I get it. I really yeah. do get it. I get it, especially when it comes to somebody you're close with and you want to, you know, you want them to be strong. You want them to fight for life and health and hanging on. But, you know, I think that there's this um, kind of Inherent suggestion that, like, by being a warrior, like, we think of warriors as like showing ongoing strength and like putting a stiff upper lip and like just powering through no matter what. And, like, I don't know, like, when you're moving through something like grief, which um, shakes you down mind, body, and soul in endless permutations and combinations, you know, you don't have to be a warrior, you just have to move through it. Sometimes you're going to have a sneak attack and and completely lose yourself for a couple hours because you're, like, lost in a memory or a reverie or a reminder or, like, a traumatic moment or trigger. You know, sometimes you're going to feel like you've got this a bit because you had a really good therapy session or you connected with a new person who made you feel seen. Mm. Um you just gotta move through it. And that's why I, you know, came up with the crab suggestion, which is really like think like a crab, you know, and just the general idea being like crabs. Are incredibly resilient. I mean, the horseshoe crab is the most resilient animal on earth. Um, and yes, horseshoe crabs are animals. They're not crustaceans, but like it worked with my metaphor. And then all these other crabs, you have them being able to pivot. Like if something's not working for them, they move to the left. They move to the right. They move to the side. They can move sideways, you know, when life like decks them where it hurts in the sense that they may literally lose an appendage. Sometimes they grow it back, you know, and maybe it's not, doesn't look the same. It's weird looking. It's kind of unfamiliar, but it's there. It grows. It grows out of like a hard thing. And so, yeah, I always say like crabs, like their only job is to really hold on to shifting sand and find their way and their footing. And so that's what I wish people would do when they look at how they approach grief. You know, you just got to hang on sometimes. And that is as worthy and as effective as like and you know as if not more so than convincing yourself that you're a warrior
0: you believe in the power of storytelling and we know from trauma research that being able to integrate a narrative or story of trauma into your larger narrative is really healing and i'm i'm curious how storytelling came to you was it sort of like a personal aha moment how did how did you decide that storytelling not warrior imagery was going to be the way forward for modern loss in the community
1: well because i'm a storyteller i mean like we're all storytellers you know i'm not just like ah, i'm a storyteller i worked in media we're all storytellers we're all storytellers that's how we connect with people that's how we build bridges that's how we you know, grow our, our ability to be empathic and imagine what it's like to be in someone else's shoes. That's how we, um, are moved to be a part of grassroots campaigns that may not affect us directly, but we understand how they're affecting others. And so we believe that we should advocate for them, such as bereavement leave or like school programs that, you know, maybe we don't even have kids, but we understand what kids and parents are going through. And we advocate for them because we read the stories of what it feels like to go through that. So storytelling is a change agent. I mean, that's just what it is. And Modern Loss was founded on that tenet. You know, I'm a journalist. I'm a former TV person. I worked in Satire, political satire. Um, so I'm not a social worker or a side. I'm not, you know, I'm not a therapist. I'm just somebody who herself has lived and lives with profound loss and will for the rest of my days. And I understand that there are wonderful arenas to explore that uh, therapeutically or religiously or, you know, other ways. I just wanted to provide a platform for people to just let it all hang out in Mm -hmm. ways that are raw and vulnerable and real and can have any tone, any words, you know, without fear Mm. of what may, people may think of them or, you know, fear of judgment. Uh, like I said, you should think like a crab you just got to move through this thing and also you know we also have to normalize this conversation because when you treat loss and grief as things that should only be talked about in those circles then you're not normalizing it you're just continuing to promote a stigma
0: you lost your mom when you were 30 and your dad at 34 and i'm i'm curious How the experience of going through such grief at what seems to me a really important time in one's career, you know, where you're sort of not necessarily early career, but you're not senior, but you're making big decisions. Like, how did all that loss affect your relationship with your ambition and what you had seen as your career plan?
1: That's a great question. Uh, I think that for a while, I, not that I lost my ambition. I really didn't. Like, I'm I'm very ambitious. But I think that – so my mom died in a car accident, and it was just about two years after I graduated – no, a year – journalism school at Columbia, and I was working for the Colbert Report, which is daily television or was daily television when it was on the air. I was an original staff member there. And I was highly ambitious. I mean, I got in on the ground floor. I was one of the original people there. I was, you know, it was just the most amazing, exciting time to be part of something like that. It was incredible. Uh, and then my mom died in you know, one minute. She was alive, then she was dead. And I kind of looked at my job as, as I think many people do, you know, like, well, for, in my case, it was like, <laughs> How are all these people able to laugh? Like, I don't understand. Don't they know my mom is dead? Like, how dare they? But it was also like, you know, because it's work, you have to take that seriously, right? So I'm not like demeaning or like uh, trivializing very important things that have to do with the workplace. Like, you do need a crew on time. You need things to happen. You need like deadlines to be met. Um, But I was like, why is any of this? Like, it just didn't feel so important to me for a while, you know? Cause I was comparing it in a very existential way. I'm uh, like, I'm like, it's not death. Like no one died. Um, and I remember a friend who was working in PR and her mom died and she used to tell me her new, uh, ethos was it's not ER, it's PR. And, you know, oh, like in PR, it's like, you know, you can, that can get really pressure cookery. Right. <laughs> totally. And she was like, screw it. Like, this is not <laughs> worth it. And I, cause I think she was like making herself sick and getting stressed out. And I am an anxious, you know, I, this is an appropriate pod for me to be invited onto. I'm an anxious person. That's how I get stuff done. You know, my anxiety drives me um, for better or for worse. And I do think that like for a period of time, it was helpful to me because I didn't take all that so seriously. Uh But then I started to again because of my ambition and because it also felt like this enormous weighty thing that I had, which was to navigate extreme loss and navigating extreme build phase of my life. And that felt so hard and so impossible. Um, And so then, you know, that felt overwhelming again. But the ambition, I think... Across the long arc of my experience, I have found that it only grew because it really propelled me to take risks that I may or may not have otherwise taken had my mom and dad not died within four years of each other. I wanted to start Modern Loss, which I started. I co-founded it in 2013. Um, So that's a long time ago now. And I really believed in it. And I didn't understand like, hey, how it would make money or like exactly how to do it. But I just felt very strongly that there was a white space in the conversation about grief and loss and community that really needed to be filled. And I don't know that I would have done something like that. And it definitely wouldn't have been grief oriented. I mean, beforehand, I wasn't interested in that. But I don't know if I would have done like a crazy entrepreneurial, you know, an entrepreneurial journalism project beforehand. But I certainly knew that I was willing to do it in the after of my life, of my lost life, because what was the worst that could happen? You know, I die. (laughs) What's the worst (laughs) that can happen? You know, and um, and I think that it just. Yeah, I mean, I'm a highly ambitious person, and I would say that at this point in my career, I feel like I have more ambition than I've ever had uh, in my entire career. Which is interesting because I'm now? not just starting out Yeah, because I really believe in what I'm doing and I have since I started it a long time ago, but a lot of people, I would say most people looked at me as though I had 20 eyes when I said that I ran a grief community and talked about, you know, adversity and building resilience and storytelling, Um, a lot of people thought that sounded like a total downer and that it should be like siloed for when you actually needed it. And now I think everybody understands that we all need it, that there's been an enormous amount of grief in the world and it will continue. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the million plus people who have died in the US alone from COVID alone. And it's like, PS, way more than that. It's probably like 1.5 at this point Mm -hmm. with the real numbers. Um, it's not just because of COVID. It's because of all of our societal grief, our, you know, our identity grief, um, our loss of coping mechanisms. Um, it's just the grief is real. And if we don't talk about it, the body keeps the score. Yep. And it will remind us that we're not talking about it. And so all of a sudden everyone understands why I have been doing what I do and they're taking me more seriously or at the very least they're not looking at me like I have 20 eyes. They're looking at me like I have like six eyes, you know, which is a it's like a that's a that's a you know, that that's an improvement.
0: No, I will say as a as a fellow public speaker like to, just the, the example you described at Amazon is the ultimate stamp of sort of corporate America approval and acknowledgment, which in itself is 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 kind of astonishing to see how far corporate America has come.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, I've done a lot. I'm doing increasing amounts of corporate talks and that is my goal. So if anybody is listening and and believes that a conversation about this stuff and especially moving through it in the workplace while keeping your head screwed on correctly, because you still have to deliver your TPS reports, which yes, I'm very much dating myself as a proud Gen Xer with that reference. Um, you know, that, reach out because I, you know, I also gave I was Capital One's mental health awareness month speaker last year. So I've been doing a lot and a lot for like financial firms, law firms, um, because I think that companies are are realizing that their employees don't have like infinite you know, like the well is not the well is dry,
0: bottomless. The well
1: is you dry. Know? It's just, <sighs> it's dry. And like, yeah, it's great to offer healthcare for your body, <laughs> but like it's all connected. And if you have an employee who is feeling. A, so isolated because they feel like they can't talk about this stuff, and be it like maybe a parent died, maybe they had a miscarriage or a stillbirth, maybe they're dealing with infertility, maybe they are they had, you know, like there's COVID, there, there are like endless ways to die in on this earth, and maybe they're struggling with something that stems from that. If they feel like they can't talk about that, and especially, you know, in a country that still does not have a national bereavement job protection policy which is absolutely insane to me then i don't understand how as an employee you can feel like your company really cares about you uh if they're asking you to brush something that can rear its head at any given moment of the day you know under the rug under the rug well, so, so i, I really re- appreciate and respect companies like you know I appreciate that Amazon really, really threw its weight behind this. You know, like they really did. They really meant it. Um, And they gave me like, I, I, t- I think I talked for an hour and I answered questions for another, you know, X amount of time and you know, Capital One, I I spoke to employees all over the world. And it's these conversations are like very, very open and they're very off the record. Like, yes, you see people's names in like the chat functionality, but it's very clear that like this is a closed conversation, like nobody's name is being used outside of this. And you would be shocked by what people are not only willing to, but need to share. They need an invitation to talk about this stuff. And they need an invitation to talk about it with their colleagues. They need their colleagues and their employers to know that they're going through hard things. They need them to know that. Because it takes too much energy to pretend like everything is totally fine. It takes a lot less energy to say that it's not and think about what you might need. And specifically in the workplace, what can your setup look like so that you are nourishing yourself and your needs? And then by extension, your company wins too, because you're a more functional human.
0: Well, so let's get down to brass tacks here. I, I want to talk about how you might ask for what you need, but I want to start on the other side. Because I, I think that it is true that that many many of us We get anxious when we're with a grieving person Um, Mm. and it can, it can trigger us or we're nervous about saying the wrong thing. And I'm, I'm curious that sort of your advice for someone who has a colleague who's coming back, who has lost something or someone, how do you welcome that person back? It's
1: great to see you. (laughs) Seriously. Like, (laughs) I mean, it's, I, it's, it's so good to see you. You know, because the chances are that person is, like, terrified to be coming back and they know that all eyes are going to be on them and they know that everyone's going to be like, oh, like, they just had a miscarriage or, like, their mom died or their brother OD'd or, like, they know that people are going to be talking about it. And so why not make themselves feel – make them feel more comfortable just by saying, it's so nice to see you. Why, why would the first thing you say be, Oh my God, I'm so sorry? Or like, I'm so sorry for a loss. You know, it's like, why not lead with like not just the loss, you know? Um, but like the person. Because when you are navigating a grief, it's really like this unknown landscape. It's very unfamiliar. And sometimes you really just don't feel like yourself. It's very surreal. And so it's really nice to be told by other people that like kind of like you're still there, you know? And whatever version of you is there, it's nice to see that version. And then of course, like absolutely after that, I always say that the, the, the best thing to say is something, not nothing. You know, the worst thing we can do is not say anything. Um, you know, because we're nervous to, um, bring something up that might remind someone, you know, it's like, that's not, you know, we're not reminding anyone of anything they don't know. Um, We just don't like talking about it for many, many reasons that are pretty obvious. And so I always say that like, yes, after you see someone for a long time, make it clear that it's really nice to see them and say, you know, it depends on like your level of connection with them. If it's a colleague and you know that they've had a loss, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry that you're going through such a hard time. Like I heard about, I heard that you had a loss. I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. That sounds really hard. You know, you don't have to say, I'm sorry for your loss. I mean, this is getting into the weeds a bit, but someone, um, a rabbi once told me actually, like, I never say sorry for your loss because you never know what kind of relationship that person had with the other person. And I'm like, yeah, good point. You know, Um, and, but if you're sorry that they're going through something that's really hard, Oh my god, isn't that the easiest thing to say to somebody? And you are sorry they're going through something really hard or that sounds really hard. And if you're closer to them at the workplace, you know, you can say, "Hey, um like let's say that you're back at work in real life now, even during COVID, like, hey, like you know, I was just wondering, do you want to maybe I wanted to know if like maybe it would help to take a break every day? Like You know, like, do you want to let me know times in your schedule when you might be able to take a walk around the block? Or, hey, do you want to grab lunch with me on Wednesdays? Or just say, I'm going to invite you every Wednesday. And, like, if you say no, that's cool. But, like, maybe one day you'll say yes. Like, just know I'm giving you a standing invitation and I'm going to text you every Wednesday morning to see if you're into it. You know, just like make it clear that like this, this is like yes, it's work, and yes, everyone's going to be expecting you to perform, which is you know just the reality. But that there are people there who also recognize that you're a person, you're going through something, and that grief doesn't take, it doesn't respect office hours. So chances are they're going to be going through grieving feelings during the work day. Well, and it's really important to take breaks.
0: Yes, grief doesn't respect office hours. Also, grief doesn't respect a timeline and. um I experienced in in my own team once, you know, a manager who got frustrated with a grieving colleague because it was up and down for them. Like it was a longer process. How do you how do you be a good colleague over the longer haul?
1: I think that um, over the longer haul, you can be a good colleague by really letting this message sink in grief is not the first week or 30 days or even calendar year. Grief can turn into something like living with loss, which is how I view my experience, but it accompanies you 24-7, 365 for the rest of your life. And so when all the casseroles are gone and like, you know, the majority of the people have stopped checking in, that person is still living with that loss. And Tuesday nights may be as difficult, if not more difficult than like days that you would expect might be really hard, like a holiday or a Hallmark holiday or like a death day, you know, I think it's really important to remember that anytime is a great time to check in with that person. Anytime. And if you, you know, this, I know we're all overwhelmed. I get it. I get it. I get it. You know, one of the reasons I wrote this book was because I was so overwhelmed by all the people who are asking me for help that I had to write a book because I'm only one person and I couldn't, give of myself personally, time-wise, when COVID hit, the way that I would have liked to. Um, But just, like, find out when that person's birthday is and when their person's birthday is. Find out the day they died. Like, was it a mother? You know, can you set Mother's Day in your calendar? Just, like, literally make Google, like, calendar reminders for yourself to check in with that person. And by the way, a text Totally fine. It's totally fine to send a text like, "Hey, I'm thinking of you." I know it's Mother's Day. Yeah. I'm just thinking of you. Like you know, um, hey, like I, I I think you know it's it's your dad's birthday this week. Um, if you want to go out for lunch this week, let me know. You know, or if you ever if you want to talk, I'm here. You know, just like. You be human. To,
0: be kind. You don't have
1: to be like a PhD. Just <laughs> exactly, be human. Be human. And if you don't know the right thing to say, you can always revert to, "Hey, I wish I knew the right thing to say. But I, I I don't. I I'm a little awkward around this stuff. But I really care about you. You know. And I'm really sorry you're going through this. And I just want you to know that I'm here. You know. Just make it clear that like you're they're not scaring you off with their hard thing.
0: I would imagine and you probably have personal experience you know that there are times when you're just having a really great work day and then you get triggered you see a news headline that reminds you of your person or someone's baby pops up you can't leave work maybe you can go sort of cry in the bathroom like is there is there any advice you can give for someone who's trying to reintegrate but is finding themselves you know feeling really vulnerable
1: i think you really need to cut yourself a break i mean i think you need to understand that grief is a a sneaky You know, mistress, you know, and she will tap you. I mean, I'm, I can't believe I'm ascribing a gender to grief, but you know, she'll, you know, (laughs) women are very crafty. (laughs) Yeah. And so, um, you know, and I say that as a compliment. We, we, we think through many levels of things. And so she'll tap you on the shoulder right before you have a presentation. You know, you will see something on your feed right before you talk to your manager or like have to, focus on something that will distract you or throw you off. It's going to happen because your grief is alive because you're alive. It's a very dynamic thing. And you have very little control, especially in the early days of what affects you, you know, like anything can be a potential trigger. The grocery aisle five in, in like, you know, uh, um, you know, Dwayne Reed can be a trigger. If you see a product that brings you back or like a, you know, something, smell or whatever, um, um, And so you need to tell yourself that you will bring your grief to work. You need to expect that. If you try to turn it off and and are unable to, then you're just going to struggle. I think that a better course of action is to preempt some of these, you know, trick, you know, like sneak attacks and build time into your day where you know you can take breaks or... Uh, talk to your manager about, okay, like what is going on in your life right now? Like, are you in the early days? Is there any way that maybe you can work like four days a week as you ease back in? Is there any way, you know, if you have a demanding schedule, can you say, listen, once a week, I have to go to a grief counselor. Can we literally mark this as me being unavailable? Because I need this in order to like give back to you. Um, Are you in a performative role? Can you say, hey, uh, for a period of time, can I take like more of like a behind-the-scenes role? You know, can I do, like, more administrative work or or something like that? And um, I really love this one, and I suggested in the book, so many of us, you know, are nervous about being evaluated, about how people perceive us, and especially, obviously, in the workplace, because that's connected to income and, you know, whatever our roles are, promotions, et cetera, respect, um, for better or for worse. And so I think that it's also valid to say, listen, like, is there any way that maybe for the next three months as I kind of like deal with the emotional fallout of like this thing that just happened and also deal with like a lot of logistical things. Because, you know, when someone dies, you normally have to take care of a lot of things that don't have anything to do with a funeral. You might need to find a new place to live or get a new car um, or transfer deeds. You know, there's a lot that's going on. And that is
0: a lot of work and very overwhelming. Oh, my God. The hours of time I remember spending on the phone over my dad's like...
1: <sighs> it's, it's insane. Password. It's like, oh a, it's God. like an insult to injury, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, like, so I would say that, um, you should really consider asking if there's a period of time that is not counted in the evaluation process. So like when you have your review, they just like are disregarding like March through June because that's fair. That's fair. You shouldn't be expected to perform at like peak level all the time. It's like literally not possible.
0: I actually, though, just to draw that out, I mean, I, I, I remember interviewing, um, a war veteran, an Iraq war veteran who had, um, had experienced severe loss on his, on his crew and, and had PTSD. And, and actually he worked himself and performed to the bone until he got into therapy. He never said no to anyone and was like a cyborg.
1: Yeah. That, that was me at the (laughs) Um, beginning. Mm-hmm. That was me. Don't be me. Don't be this guy. <laughs> and, you know, again, like, sometimes you will be those people just because you're struggling and it's new and you don't know what to do. And you're listening to some people who say work is your salvation, <laughs> you know, like, just don't just focus, you know, Um, and you will do that. But I, I'm just saying, if you're listening to me, just keep my voice in your head. And, say, you know, like that, don't say yes to everything. Like, there's just you, you are... Grief is a full-body, full-mind experience, and grieving grief brain is very much a thing. When you're grieving, your neurons are quite literally trying to understand the sudden absence of this person or this formerly living thing. It doesn't understand because your brain views this being as a given in your life, and it, it really can't understand that it's it's no longer a given. And so that's why we go to like suddenly call our person and then we remember and we're like, oh my God, I feel so stupid. It's not that, it has nothing to do with that. It's just the way that we're wired. So you have to understand like there's a lot going on and you should really cut yourself a break and build space in to, to deal with that.
0: Rebecca, you mentioned anxiety. Um, I'm curious how your relationship with your anxiety changed with the addition of loss and and how you manage your anxiety today um
1: you know i feel like once anxious always anxious i'm like (laughs) a upper west side jewess who was raised (laughs) in philadelphia i mean come on like obviously i have anxiety um who of us does not these days I uh but i i find you know i don't I don't believe that I have debilitating anxiety. I don't, you know, it's, it's, I don't believe I have the anxiety that like drives you to just stare at the wall and be deer in the headlights all the time. For me, the anxiety kind of drives me, but also like takes, takes, takes it out of me. You know, it's not like, I wish I weren't, like that, because I do think that anxiety affects you, you know, adversely. It's it's hard, but that's also part of being human and part of going through hard things, um, especially if you're already kind of hardwired to have a level of anxiety. You just have to learn how to manage it. You have to learn how to stop yourself and pull yourself back into the moment and learn mindfulness techniques. And yep, mindfulness is like a big buzzword now, but that's because mindfulness works. You know, different mindfulness practices basically they're meant to yank you back into the moment when your brain is spiraling out and you're like, oh my God, I have this. this, this, this. Okay. Just like, nope. Be here now. <laughs> As my mom used to say, she used to um, quote Ram Das and be here now. Just like you got to get through. The, if you're really not, if you're feeling like your anxiety level is rising, you have to stop yourself and just remind yourself that you're here right now. You're safe. You just have to get through the next five minutes. And then you'll take it from there. And so I would say that like these little practices, and I write a lot about them in the book, they really help me. You know, my anxiety level in general, I mean, we've been living in a pandemic for two and a half years. It's been hard and it's been isolating. But yeah, I mean, yes, my anxi- I, I have anxiety. I just try my very, very, very best to harness it and and use it for, you know, Something productive. And I don't mean just work, although work is real driver for me. I'm, I'm really, I'm very driven by my work. I'm very committed to my mission, very, very committed to my mission. Did
0: anxiety help you create modern loss or drive it forward?
1: Um, I think that it was more just, like, the exhaustion and annoyance that I had by, um, always having to explain, like, feeling so alone in this conversation about loss and wishing that I could just, like, talk to somebody in a way that was, like, let it all hang out and real and, like, you know, just made me feel like a human and didn't make me feel like I was in therapy and, like, made it really clear that if I, you know, um, had to you know if I was talking about my dating life or my work life or whatever that it was like understood that all of these conversations were happening against the backdrop of loss, and so inherently people understood that it was coming from I'm a person who lives with real loss and maybe that's why I'm flying that weird flag sometimes, you know, and so i I really felt like when I started meeting people in my life who got it you know personally like firsthand got it. That's when I really felt, like, seen and, like, better and less freaked out, you know, about feeling like I had to spend all my energy putting up all these guards and putting up all these personal facades and masks. It just felt so much better to just, you know, say, look, I had this awful date and, like, oh, my God. And, like, you know, just be able to talk and connect and and know that people were seeing me in like a full 360 way. That and that included my grief. And that really helped them to respond better to me.
0: That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends, I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me, or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn, where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening.